0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. My name is Ryan Stakos, and today we'll be looking at the world of spies and lies through ideological eyes. Katrin Paler is joining us to talk about her new book, The Third Reich's Intelligence Services, The Career of Walter Schellenberg, published just last year in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. Katrin is an Associate Professor of History at Illinois State University and was also a member of the Independent Historians' Commission on the German Foreign Office and Nazism and its aftermath. The Third Reich's Intelligence Services is the first analysis of Nazi Germany's political intelligence service, known as Office Six, and it mixes an institutional history with political biography of the Nazi spymaster Walter Schellenberg to great effect, most notably in highlighting the effects of ideology and arguing that the ultimate aim of Office Six was no less than the creation of an independent foreign policy. But enough from me. Katrin Paler has graciously agreed to join us today to talk about her book, so without further ado, Katrin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited and nervous. So let's go.
0: (laughs) I noticed you share an alma mater with Schellenberg at Phillips University Marburg. Uh, Do
1: we need to be worried? Uh, It's pretty funny because I only noticed that after while I was studying this and there was a strange moment of, holy cow, what's going on here? And um, I don't think we need to be worried, but I think there was quite a bit to learn from his. Strange decision to go to that university at that point in time. And that, that I found very intriguing. And I'm, I write about that in one of the chapters because I was so fascinated by that. Um And it was also strange to go back to Marburg and and look at the university archive and think, hmm, that man walked these streets. And I know the places he went to. And I know some of the fraternities where he was hanging out. And those guys are creepy. So um, there was an interesting component to that.
0: I was curious about your background. How did you end up becoming a historian? Oh,
1: Jesus, how much time do you have? Growing up in Germany, um, being interested in history in general. I mean, I was one of those strange kids who you know, read about, I don't know, ancient Egypt at the age of nine or something like that. Um, so there was always that interest, and then I became incredibly interested obviously in in nazi germany very early on um 10 11 12 13 and i think part of that was really growing up in in germany and the strange realization you know looking around and say the early 80s or late 70s um and and realizing what parents and grandparents were talking about and looking around at this you know Presumably, peaceful land and thinking seriously here, all of that. I want to learn more. Um, so that was very much part of it. And then I think I'm, I'm part of the post NBC Holocaust generation. So in the early 1980s, there was this huge upswing of books, um, geared towards, you know, teenagers um, dealing with Nazi Germany. And, um, I, I think I read my way through pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. So that, that is part of that.
0: How then did you make the transition from this general interest in history and a growing interest in the Third Reich to the intelligence services and Walter Schellenberg specifically? How did you write this book?
1: Oh, that's a long story. I got my, my MA in, in Germany and then I came to um, writing on student resistance. I wrote on the White Rose. Uh, to be more precise, I wrote on Kurt Huber. So, the professor involved with White Rose. Mm-hmm. And then I came to the United States, got my PhD at American University, where I worked with Richard Brightman. And I, to, to phrase it in a stupid way, I had gotten the resistance business out of my system. So, I wanted to do something quite different. And while writing my MA thesis in, in Germany, I had developed this growing interest in what we can call the Nazi intellectuals, the SS intellectuals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Schellenberg, Best, those guys. And I was particularly interested in Best um, because I, I've, I found him quite fascinating. But obviously somebody else wrote a really brilliant book on that. Um, and obviously I'm talking about Uli Herbert's big Best biography. On the shelf right here. Yeah, I, I think everybody has it on the shelf. So that was one of, I mean, if I want to be really tongue-in-cheek, that was a book I really wanted to write when I was 24.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that's a good one. Um, so I started to cast a wider net. Other people, it's like Ollendorf, Schellenberg, and that's when I, when I got hooked on Schellenberg because there was so much interesting stuff going on there. And then this book... Developed in a strange sense because at one point Richard Brightman looked at me and said, You know, you want to write a book like Oli Habert, and you can't do that at this point in your career. You just don't have the, I don't know, the, the, the wide knowledge for something like that to write this, you know, nicely integrated biography. And I remember being slightly offended, and he was so right with a statement so that's when i when i started to broaden this yet again outside of the biographical and started to think about the institution which also explains to some extent the structure of this book because it's still partly biographical and it's partly institutional and i'm trying to bring that one together and you see the origins of the, that of this particular book there, in my initial wish to write a biography at a point when biography was not really fashionable. But I like biographies because it helps me to think and to conceptualize things. And and the book is um, you know those those two parts intersecting sometimes side by side, and I think um, that tension makes it interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of this intersection between biography and and institutional history, you start the book by tracing Schellenberg's life through some of the early breaks in his career up to the point where it really takes off. Mm -hmm. Who, Who was Schellenberg, and how did he find his way into this career with the SS Security Service?
1: Oh, man. Who was he? A man who really wanted to make a career. And you can see that, I I argue, in his decisions, early decisions all the way through. You know, where to go to school, what to study, Mm -hmm. um, which classes to take, which fraternity to join. And he he was casting for, for the best opportunities, which is not to say that he was not ideological, but he was not... In, in, in the beginning, I would argue, one of those strongly committed ideological soldiers. And then being recruited, and that's the way he tells the story, which means we have to stick with it to some extent. Being rec- recruited into the SD very early on, when it is an extremely small organization, is um, you know an opportunity made in heaven for someone as, as career-minded as Schellenberg.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But even at even at that point, he, he's he's still, and I'm talking about the early 30s here. He he's still trying to keep various options open. You know, he's 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 doing part of his referendariat or something similar to that with um, an what is called an alter heir of the, the of the Burschenschaft in in Marburg, who is a lawyer. So, there's still a component of, well, we see what works out for my career.
0: So, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the the German legal training system and what he goes through and what the Burschenschaften are, could you give us a little bit of background on that?
1: So, uh, the Burschenschaften are basically fraternities, right wing elitist fraternities at the university. They have this long tradition coming out of the 19th century. But at this point, the point we are looking at, it's basically, They are anti-Semitic, elitist, right-wing fraternities. Um, Young men join them for the social component, but also for the network of what we would call in this context, alumni, in the U.S. context, alumni, um, which help them to connect students into those old boy networks.
0: So he enters... The university, and he's looking for these opportunities for social advancement, as you lay out. He goes into law, and then he ends up finding his way to the SD. How is that?
1: He, he does the first what two years, I think, um, at Marburg, where he's a member of of, of a particularly conservative, a particularly elitist. Um, um, fraternity. And then then he moves to Bonn to finish his studies there. And it is in Bonn that he was recruited to the SD by two professors or lecturers. I don't think that the two people we are talking about are full professors in, in the ordinario sense. So they are not holding a chair. Um, so he's, he's then recruited into the SD there as largely as an ideological speaker. So that is how the recruitment works. But he, he certainly, I would argue, comes prepped, prepared, because he has this conservative background, this, um, the, 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 the proper university background, to then um, become this ideological speaker in Bonn. But that is a, a very brief part of his career, And it's also quite unclear what happens there, which means I'm relying there mostly on what Schellenberg is saying himself. And he is a very unreliable uh, narrator when it comes to his own life. To
0: put it mildly, as you point out throughout the book.
1: I'm trying to be nice here, you know. (laughs) But, um, you know, we have various stories there where he tries to explain how he ends up with the SD. Um, they, They kind of coalesce around the story i'm telling here the other thing to keep in mind that as much as i'm fretting about that and as much as i would like to know more about that when schellenberg is writing all of this this is not an important component of his life so it's just one of those things he mentions and then he moves on yeah um so i'm more interested in that than, than he or anyone else ever was
0: very much more uh, a prelude to his later career.
1: Yes, but um, you know, part of the point I'm making here is to, to say that's an important prelude, and and it makes sense to to think about that. I mean, it also makes sense to 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 go back to the Marburg issue. How come that a guy who comes out of a Catholic, culturally Catholic household—that's how I would describe it to go to a university that is reasonably far away and is also known as a Protestant university. But it, Marburg is, is a university that holds a lot of prestige at, at that particular point in time, and it is known for a place that is anti-Semitic elitist, rightist when it comes to the university. So it's, it's, it's a career choice right there. Mm-hmm. Don't know whether it was a conscious career choice, but you know, if you have the university to pick, uh, if you have the opportunity to pick a university, um, you you make choices right there, and he certainly does. Well, he comes
0: to the SS Security Service through his work as a as a essentially a glorified public speaker, mm-hmm. and from this he goes on to rise to a key figure in the Security Police Administration. How does he rise through the ranks so quickly? What what leads him on this path?
1: He is smart, he is industrious, so he gets stuff done. Um, He puts his legal training to good use. And he is really good at finding patrons. So working for the person who is, you know, his his supervisor who doesn't necessarily have the legal training that Schellenbeck has. Who not quite as industrious so he manages to to basically get his supervisor's job for a couple of years there you know it's it's, it's always I mean, he's working for someone and then one notices that this someone is not there anymore and Schellenberg has jumped the ladder a little bit hmm. so that is very much the way how that works it's also important to keep in mind that what is the SD is a very small outfit at this point in time. It's a really good place for young, ambitious men with the right training to make a career. So, so people who can, how I put that, who are not simply party hacks, who can negotiate the distance between the party and the civil service. Who have the proper training? So have uh, to, to some uh, to have the uh, who have the university training, who have to some extent, um, you know, a, a leg on both sides of the divide. And and, and I think there is a world opportunity for people like that, like Schellenberg, at that particular point in time.
0: Well, the case study that you provide is the planning for the future. Reich Security Main Office, and before that, even what the career paths for personnel between the security service and the larger security police are going to be. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that, because that really seems to be the moment that Schellenberg makes his career, or one of the moments when he makes his career.
1: Yeah, there's this, this big discussion going on of how are we going to integrate the SSSD crowd into the police, into some sort of a civil service. And part of the issue is that Heydrich and others would like to be able to to put their men simply, to put it simply, to put them into police positions. However, this is a modern state. It's a modern bureaucracy. So to have a certain position in the civil administration, even in Nazi Germany, you are supposed to have a certain level of training Um, because uh, that that is a requirement for for this position because it's it's a proper civil servant. And what Schoenberg is asked is to figure out how to make that work. And what basically happens there is that two people are pitted against each other on the one hand Werner Best who I mean who he, is very much a Nazi ideologue but he's also very much trained in the old system. And and his argument is that university degrees Proper training matters, and Schellenberg is trying to figure out how to, well, how to work around that while still retaining somewhat of uh, the integrity of the civil service. So you know, the the, the big deal is that Best is making an argument for people who are properly, tr- not pro- who are properly trained and good Nazi ide- uh, ideologues. Um, Heydrich is is incredibly concerned about this becoming a civil servants' shop. It's it's the terminology he uses, something along those lines. <clears throat> and 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 Schallberg is straddling this whole business, but eventually he comes down on Heydrich's side, and they go after best with all guns blazing. Um, in in terms of a very. Very public dress down of of Best, and the intriguing part is, I mean, um, it's it's not that Best is defending um, an independent civil service, but it's it's rather an intra Nazi argument of how the civil service of the future is going to look.
0: Well, it's out of this work for Heydrich as head of the security police that it seems Schellenberg really becomes the go to man for. A very influential Nazi within the security services.
1: Yeah, yes, and and I think what Heydrich liked about him is that, um, that Schellenberg certainly had the proper loyalty training, and he could deal with people like Best, in the sense that, um, that there is a level at which um, Best and Schellenberg, who were both trained in law, were peers, but at the same time that that allowed Schellenberg to t- at least try to take Best down, so. Um, Schellenberg becomes Heydrich's go-to person for complicated bureaucratic matters. And we see that first here, and then we see that with um, the setup of the Reich main security office, Reich security main office, Reich Sicherheitshauptamt. Um, Well, it's actually Schellenberg who writes the first draft of how the structure is going to look. And then there are long negotiations, and there's a little bit of a back and forth between him and Heydrich, but at the end of the day, um, the blueprint Schellenberg came up with is the is what becomes the Reich Security Main Office. So he is the go to person for those complicated matters when it comes to Heydrich. So that's another one of his his um, you know important patrons. Obviously, he's not taking over Heydrich's position, um, <clears throat> but in terms of finding patrons within. The SD, it doesn't get much better at that point. Also, keep in mind, we are talking about, um, what, the year 38, 39 here. So Schellenberg's 28, 29 years old. This is a pretty stellar career.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because it doesn't stop here. It's out of this, it seems, that Schellenberg begins to First, he transfers to counterintelligence work with the Gestapo, the secret state police who have this counterintelligence function. Yeah, And then he sort of begins remaking himself as an intelligence man. Can you talk us through that process?
1: Um, yeah, let me try. Um, so, so basically, after the establishment of the Reich Security Main Office, um, there isn't quite a job there for Schellenberg. So he's, he's kind of at, a little bit at loose ends. But he has always been interested, as he puts it, into, in, in, in f- uh, foreign policy matters and foreign intelligence. It, initially, he ends up in the counterintelligence section of the Gestapo, the secret state police. And, and he tries to rethink what intelligence means in the Nazi state. And we know fairly little about this time period as the head of the Gestapo counterintelligence. But what I've been able to find doesn't look particularly good, to put it mildly. Schellenberg himself manages, after the war, to basically make that those years well disappear, or they're they're just a, you know a small element of 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 his career and not as interesting as the later years. But it's there where he's trying to to refigure what counterintelligence is, making it more into active intelligence. And he is trying to um, basically gobble up as many responsibilities as possible at that point in time and um, as many responsibilities as possible within what is Office 4 of the Reich Security Main Office, the Gestapo. Obviously, there is quite a bit of headwind, but what happens in this time period is that Schellenberg establishes himself as one of the people who thinks about intelligence, who has a vision. It, it's not a particularly well phrased or particularly clear vision, but he's certainly making enough noises there. He also, it's in this time period that he makes closer contact to Himmler. Heinrich Himmler actually travels on Himmler's train a couple of times when they are talking about what is called counterintelligence measures, particularly in Poland. And here we are talking about um, the AB Aktion, so the arrest of um, Polish intellectuals and also um, about um, uh, other active policing measures abroad. Let's 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 put it like that. So he finds himself another woolly, intriguing patron in this context, and then Schellenberg is famously involved with um, the incident at the uh, at the border in in Venlo, Venlo, in the Netherlands. So the attempt to abduct, ab, abduct, sorry about that, abduct the two British intelligence officers, and they are indeed abducted. This is the Fenlow is a, one of those complicated stories because it seems that everybody and his cousin wasn't was involved. I'm I'm still somewhat unclear of who exactly came up with it, what exactly, how, how exactly this this worked. But for Schellenberg, the important thing is that when stuff went down, so when there is this big shootout in 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 Fenlow, and they drag the two guys across the border, Schellenberg is right in the thick of it. And that is certainly an important moment in his career, because before, you know, he had made this, he had created this image of himself as as an intellectual, someone who thinks about intelligence. And here he presents himself as someone who does daring spy work.
0: This, again, seems to be another one of these inflection points in his career. He parlays this experience with the Gestapo counterintelligence Mm -hmm. section and this kind of activist operation to go out and seize members of foreign intelligence services on foreign soil to a takeover of Office 6 within the Reich Security Main Office.
1: Political Foreign Intelligence Service, it's like how I would like to describe it.
0: At this point in the book, you turn away from Schellenberg specifically and toward some of the background, the institutional history of this organization. Yes, how did the SS security service and office six later conceptualize and conduct intelligence
1: operations?
0: Nice, small questions.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those cool questions. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm sounding vague on it because quite a bit of that, I think even with my book, is still shady and unclear. What I'm trying here is to get closer to it. The situation in in Germany is the following. There is no shortage of intelligence organizations or organizations that um, collect information. And what becomes the what becomes Office 6 of um, the Reich Security Main Office. So SD, Foreign Intelligence, is one of those many organizations. And initially, they they have a very restricted mandate because they are not supposed to collect military intelligence because that falls under the purview of the there. They are not really doing what diplomats are doing. So, you know the, the kind of broad political information that diplomats tend to collect. So they are they are trying to find a particular avenue into intelligence, and it focuses on what I sometimes call the attempt of ideological enforcement abroad. Um, the The other issue is that all of this is the the SD, so the Security and Intelligence Service, initially, and. Initially, the SD, so we're talking about the early 1930s here, consists of three offices. So one for administration, one for domestic intelligence collection, and one for foreign intelligence collection. And it's the domestic intelligence collection that is actually doing most of the work. So foreign intelligence collection is a little bit of a stepchild and afterthought there is a little bit of work going on in the mid-1930s, but we, we have a very shaky understanding of that. It's, it's, it's quite unclear what exactly they are doing. And then in the, integra- in the creation of the Reich Security Main Office in 1939, what used, to do, what used to be Office 3 of the Security and Intelligence Service becomes Office 6 of the Reich Security Main Office. Nazi bureaucracy, I know. Um, it's not the most exciting thing, but it's, uh, I think it's important to have a little bit of a handle on that because um, the, the, the problem remains that this organization, what, what used to be Office 3, now is Office 6, had been an afterthought for such a long time with, with a very unclearly defined mandate. And what they had been trying to do in the late 1930s is to fill that one with meaning somehow. And what they do is they tend to spy across the border and rely quite heavily on Nazi fellow travelers. So a good example here is what is going on in Czechoslovakia, in in particular in the Sudeten territories. What we also see already there is a fairly activist stance so that... um, the SD, the Security and Intelligence Service, a foreign section of the Security and Intelligence Service, to be quite precise, tends to support the most radical group that exists in, in any Nazi universe. So that's what they do, for example, in the, in the Sudeten. So it's an it's an activist thinking about foreign intelligence it's not simply reporting but it's also um, you, you know making the news making the making the foreign policy developments does it answer your question or did I just go off on the mother of all tangents
0: that's exactly what I think is most important about what you're doing because yeah, like you say situating the entirety of office Six's background in this this ideological base that's what's so exciting to me i'm so i'll talk about the gestapo some other time when you come on to the other podcast I, I i i really like this angle in this book
1: okay thank you <laughs> um, because p- part of the problem here is um that the source base sucks and that is a technical term here
0: mm-hmm.
1: because I, f- I find it really hard to put that together i'm after all these years and after all the work, I'm still not quite happy with it because it's so disjointed. But I think despite the disjointedness that still exists, one can see certain patterns. And, and one of those important patterns is certainly the, the ideological commitment, the ideological conviction. And, and just if there's anyone out there who really wants to work on that, there is what I think is a humongous, what, what I know is a humongous collection of um, documents, which I wasn't able to use as much as I would have liked to in the archives in Moscow. So I think part of that can be written out of that archival collection. So if someone really wants to look at, you know, operations on the ground, Moscow is a place to go. Talk to me.
0: Now, One of the big arguments you're driving at in this book is this idea that Schellenberg was trying to create an independent foreign office with a separate foreign policy almost. Part of this process entails conflict with the other sources of intelligence collection and analysis, specifically military intelligence as you move forward. Can you tell us a bit more about this rivalry and what the results of it were?
1: I mean, the the rivalry between... um Office six and, and the upwear is well known, and, and as is the fact that um eventually Office Six takes over the upwear. The, the, the big conflict initially is about who collects what intelligence. And we see Office Six encroaching on Upwear Authority, put it that way. And finagling its way into it, I think that is the best way of of thinking about that. And one of the interesting things is here, Schellenberg, after his appointment um, to to head Office Six in forty one, that he is smarter about doing that than his predecessor, Jost. So you know the same conflict is there with the up there, but um, Schellenberg is is smarter about that, and it's um, it's under his supervision that Office Six then really tries to find the pressure points of the military intelligence service, and to some extent what what um, Office Six is doing is that. They are point. They keep pointing out where military intelligence goes wrong, where they didn't have good enough information. So that is one issue. And then they try to beat them at their own game, with an uh, at their own game, but um, in an amped up version. So you know the the, the famous um, Operation Zeppelin, for example. So the idea to use. Um, Soviet POWs, of so uh, use uh, Soviet POWs as agents behind Soviet lines. So there is nothing, nothing tremendously new about it, you know, but military intelligence, and tactical intelligence has always done that. But what Office Six does is they think about this as a huge operation. So you know, the more, the merrier. Um, trying to send those those Soviets um, across the lines um, into a Soviet-held territory to then report back, and the idea here is um, that that somehow those Soviet POWs have become I don't know Nazi fellow travelers, ideological fellow travelers, and they will be so happy to do something uh, to do anything about against Moscow that they will. Happily um, work for Nazi Germany, and once again, the the big thing is that they try to do that in a in a massive operation, and 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 that is, I, I think, a good example here of of what Office Six is trying to do. Do it in a greater fashion. Do do it in a more outrageous fashion with more people with even less um, interest in in human losses. So that is the the Office 6 way.
0: Ultimately, as you say, the Abwehr, military intelligence, becomes incorporated into Office 6. How does this happen?
1: The takeover of the Abwehr had its background in... suspicions of treason against the out there which dated back um, to thirty nine and 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 uh, Canaris is uh, don't don't even want to call them peace feelers but there is this general suspicion of Canaris that he is not quite quite as committed as many people would like him to be let's put it that way um and it's in in forty two forty three that that there is even more suspicion against um, individual up there officers, also um, implicating Canaris again. So it's it's a, it's a, there's a currency charge, um, but 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 all of this happens with the background of suspicions about Canaris and Oster, and as we know there there were attempts to make contacts with the Western Allies. What happens is is this intriguing thing I would say where two things happen at the same time. It is blown up, but there is also something going on. And There had been an ongoing interest by Schellenberg and Himmler and Kaltenbrunner, who is the head of the high security office, high security main office, I'm sorry, at this point in time, to take over the up there, an an ongoing interest. And this is the perfect point in time to basically go in for the kill. Um, Also, Canaris lost Hitler's uh, Supports so all of that coming together, then leads to a situation where the upwear is basically done. In the, the official takeover happens in in uh, in May of 1944, if I'm not mistaken, 23 May. What is quite intriguing, and one can see Schellenberg working this again, how he tries to lay out what I call a layout, a vision for. For Germany's future intelligence and information service, and what he thinks that organizations should do, so he's he's laying out a fairly broad vision that um, goes much beyond um, the restriction to political intelligence that he had talked about before. But it's it's quite ideologic. Ideological, it's quite racialized and it shows a very peculiar thinking about intelligence, um, to put it mildly. At the same time, he manages to integrate into Office 6 those parts of the upwear which um, are most useful for him. And he creates a fiction in that, that allows some of the upwear personnel to make that transfer with their heads held reasonably high. So initially um, there is a joint leadership of this new branch um, with him and someone else. So the, the whole point is and I think one, one sees rather nicely how Schellenberg is able to to work a bureaucracy by by saying hey more, more or less saying there is no need to antagonize all of their personnel but rather we would like to incorporate the personnel and their networks and their knowledge so let's try to do that in a way that is reasonably acceptable to them and that is what 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 happens in that particular summer in that particular spring of 1944 and what I found intriguing, are the, the speeches that Schellenberg and Himmler give at uh, this conference in May, which is meant to, to bring the, the two organizations together. And intriguingly enough, um, those speeches, both of them, were in Moscow. And it's one of the few places where Schellenberg actually talks about his vision. And as I indicated a moment ago, it's a fairly... It's an ideological. It's a racialized. It's an anti-Semitic way of thinking about the intelligence. So, uh, intelligence work and the intelligence services' intelligence work, and it's very much in conflict with the way how he presents himself after the war, when he tries to present himself as, as a as a good technocrat, a, a perfectly reasonable intelligence operative, intelligence practitioner. Who's uh, who wasn't particularly ideological, who had to react to ideological demands which were brought upon him from the outside, and what one can see in this speech is something quite different, namely a man who conceptualizes, who conceptualizes an ideological intelligence service which collects intelligence in in an ideological fashion, analyzes it that way, and obviously in this way then serves the state.
0: You turn your attention to Italy as a case study of Office 6 under Schellenberg and come away, shall we say, less than impressed. Could you tell us a bit about operations in Italy and what they reveal about the organization?
1: Uh, what I found most interesting about this Italy example is that you can see so nicely how stuff is not working based on ideology. And and I don't even want to pick a particular example here, but but uh, I mean you, you, you can see here how agents are picked and this particular group that is picked early on is just ridiculously homogenous which means that there is pretty much no way of reporting on anything outside of either ethnic German organizations, most of them Nazi organizations, or fascist Italian organizations, because they, they just don't have the range to to see anything else. So one can see that one there. Um, one One can see the the difficulty of making something work in Rome. What Office Six does is they send main representatives to Rome and the main representatives and um, what we can think of them as the key person. I think we're in the US we would call it a station chief. You know, station chief without there being a station. So it's a key person, they call it a main representative. They they send those guys to Rome, and they screw up within record time because they are too heavy-handed, they're they're too ideological, they try to make policies. um, They try to sort out differences within their networks, and it blows up into their face very quickly. So then in, in Rome, we have this very fascinating situation that there is no main representative, ostensibly. But it turns out that the secretary, for all intents and purposes, becomes the main representative um, for Office 6 of the Reich Main Security Office in Rome. So Hildegard Bates is is the person who runs the operations in Rome, which I find utterly fascinating um, because she shows up in the official documents as the secretary to police representative Kappler. But if one looks carefully at her interrogations and puts a few things together, there is much more going on. So once again, that's an interesting thing that goes with the sources we have. You know, the the closer you look and the more you put things together, one finds intriguing things here a 27-year-old woman, who no, she isn't even 27 at that point, she is, what, 24, who is running operations in Rome. So um, that I found interesting about the Italian example. Then you see in the Italian example the information that does not arrive, which is that um, it's it's very late in the game that um, Office 6 gathers a de- decent understanding that there might be a coup coming against Mussolini. And then after 1943, so after September 1943, that is, um, we see rather nicely the ongoing conflict within the Reich Security off- Main Office playing out in Italy. But we also see that under the pressure Of this new situation, we see more cooperation between the various branches of the Reich main security office while they are in Italy. I think it's Michael Wild in his Generation des Unbedingten where he talks about um, the fact that the, the proper integration of the Reich security main office only happens... During the war and mostly in occupied Europe. And we see that in the Italian case here as well. So, um, internal conflicts, which are ridiculously important in Berlin, um, which determine what everybody is doing in Berlin, and which are quite important um, in the early phase of the war, break down and become much less important in the latter phase of the war, which is when this Reich Security Main Office really becomes an integrated instrument of terror and policing and surveillance. And we can see that, I think, in the Italian case rather nicely.
0: So as part of his plans, Schellenberg also comes into conflict with the foreign office, this being the plans to create this independence, for, independent foreign policy almost. You describe Office 6 in the foreign office as operating in separate universes. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by this and, and where, where you see the conflict between the two arising?
1: I see the conflict. One part of the conflict here, I would say, is quite simply the collection of intelligence. So the collection of intelligence, and then very early on, and that is, is still under Yoast, with Office 6, uh, representatives abroad taking quite an active stance um, trying to make foreign policy abroad. So in Romania, for example, uh, they, they're involved with Sima uh, there, um, the coup against uh, Antonescu. So, so there's that element the conflict that is there through collection and um, Office 6 agents trying to make policy. And the Foreign Office comes down very hard on that and they have Hitler's support. So for a long time, the Foreign Office is is actually hanging on to that. They negotiate very um, um, hard-nosed agreement with Office 6 and Office 6 is in a fairly... Um, difficult spot when they negotiate that, which basically boils down to the fact that before any Office 6 agents go abroad, they have to file for the proper visas with the foreign office, which is kind of cool if you think about that. So what you can find in the foreign office files is this whole bunch of visa applications for people working for Office 6 in, in various capacities. And it's, it's funny, when Shellberg becomes the head, the director of Office 6, I have the sneaking suspicion that he's trying to bury the foreign office under paperwork. So he's, he's, he's they're filing those visa applications like there is no tomorrow. And every now and then, Ribbentrop throws his weight around. Cool. And has people like Himmler apply for a visa? So um, to, to to really make make the point who, who is in charge of 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 issues like that. So so there there is that conflict. I think the other conflict has to do with Schellenberg's personality. Mm-hmm. Because Schellenberg fancies himself as a foreign politician, someone who should be making foreign policy. It's not that he has a particularly clear vision, but it's certainly his idea of himself. When he says um, in, in one of his, either it's either one of his many interrogations or it is his autobiography where he talks about, I've always been interested in foreign intelligence and he had he didn't have the class background necessarily to make it into the dip- diplomatic service so foreign intelligence is also you know a way to do something related without being in the diplomatic service but once he becomes the head of office 6 he thinks of foreign intelligence services as as making foreign policy to quite some extent. And he's certainly not the first person to think that and certainly not the last person to think that. But he's more committed to that than many others, I would say. So what we see is this mounting conflict between the foreign office on the one hand and office six on the other hand. Where Schoenberg styling himself as what what I call this, you know, Himmler's, Uh, Himmler's uh, foreign minister. So he's he's trying to push some sort of independent SS foreign policy here by making contacts abroad, by trying to use... I use the example of Sweden, where I argue that he... His, his people are well-known, Schoenberg's people, that is, and that he's trying to signal to the Swedes and maybe to the Western Allies as well that there is another game in town. So that if one wants to talk to some German official, one doesn't necessarily have to talk to the foreign office people. One can as well talk to the foreign intelligence people. So that that is a conflict I see developing there, and um, I, I mean Chamberlain is very active in trying to get rid of Ribbentrop. I mean that is, I think the initial plan is basically to to get rid of Ribbentrop and try to put a right security main office person into Ribbentrop's position. So be that Schellenberg or be that Carl there are several people who like to think of themselves as, um, as better foreign ministers than, Charles, uh, than, than Ribbentrop. Right. I mean, Ribbentrop is a whole different ball game and there are too, too many mm-hmm. jokes, too little time. But so that, that is the first plan. And then, That I think also explains Schellenberg's role in what is called the Luther affair. So, where Martin Luther, who is a state secretary in the foreign office, they are trying to get Ribbentrop. That one blows up tremendously. Once again, Schellenberg manages to get out of that one scotch free. And and that is the first, what the literature says thus far is basically that is the first, the last concerted effort. To get rid of Ribbentrop and replace him with an Office 6 person, a Rice uh, Security Main Office person. I'm not so sure about that because there is a later attempt to get rid of Ribbentrop through the Chiano uh, Diaries. So that happens in in uh, 44, early 44 and, and mid 44. And then there is a concerted effort. In the sept- in September of October of 1944 which himmler and Schaumberg basically go for a full-on assault on the Foreign Office one more time and and I argue here that they're using the playbook that comes out of the moment when they got rid of the upwehr so um, the suggestion of treason. And the idea is here that there are enough people in the foreign office who have um, family or political re- relations to members of the officer plot. So there is an attempt now to get all of this material together and to create the big report that will persuade Hitler to get rid of Ribbentrop. So that is one element here, and the other element is, as I as I say a couple of times, the attempt to work around um, the foreign office to say, okay, well it's still there, but we are going to to signal that there is another game in town, and and we are just going to to ignore the foreign office and work around it.
0: The end of the war is fast approaching at this point. And Schellenberg is the heart of this scheme to broker a peace agreement using concentration camp detainees as pawns. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a debate about whether this was a humanitarian effort or an attempt to drive a wedge or positioning. Could you tell us about Schellenberg's involvement in this and what you found in your
1: research? Um, Schellenberg is involved with those matters fairly early on. So the way he tells it, he basically, you know, counsels um, Himmler to negotiate a separate peace as early as 1943, but that's obviously his post-war statement. Um, That said, we can pick up, um, you know, the the bits and bobs where where people in Schellenberg's universe are poking around Western allies. Um, from 43 on, but I think he's certainly making, um, making too much out of that. Um, he becomes very much involved with, um, the negotiations first in, 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 in Sweden with Hewitt. Um, and, and then in, in, in 44 with the Swiss and in, in 45, he, late forty four early forty five he 's one of the driving forces trying to make um connections to Swedish industrialists let 's put it that way mm. and and he he's he's very much um he 's very much banking on goodwill he had accrued, especially with some of the Swedes. In moments when he had performed more as a diplomat than as a spy master, so for example, when it comes to the situation of those those famous the warsaw swedes so the um the, the Swedish um um managers who had been arrested in 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 Warsaw for support of the the Polish underground and who were Largely sentenced to death, and um, Schellenberg was one of the people who helped to uh, help to make it possible that those death sentences are thrown out. So that goes to my earlier point that there is an idea that Schellenberg is is signaling to people that there is potentially another game in town when when it comes to the whole negotiation about the end of the war. I mean, obviously Schellenberg likes to portray himself as a humanitarian once it's all over. I do think that he is, um, that this is obviously a post-war, post-war apology, a um, post-war excuse for everything that went on, whatever you want to call that post-war justification. That's what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, While he certainly didn't mind a few people being rescued, that was not what this was about. But rather, I think it was about trying to break up the anti Hitler coalition by either uh, negotiating a separate peace or, in a perfect world, make the anti Hitler coalition explode and gain. A different a new lease on life for parts of Nazi Germany or parts of Nazi part of Nazi Germany's official dom. So any any humanitarian effects were absolutely side effects. and I think um, that shows up rather nicely in the document in, in the documents I'm using here because they, 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 they're using the term it's a name effect. A side effect. So, if a few people get released, so what? Uh, but, but this is not what it is about. But it's, it's it's it is rather about trying to negotiate something, which will either end the war or explode the anti-Hitler coalition. But it's also um. It's also the last step of Schellenberg remaking himself into a full-blown diplomat. And and that works out rather nicely for him.
0: So at long last, we find the Nazi spymaster fleeing the country. What happened to Schellenberg during the collapse in the post-war era?
1: So, so Schellenberg, he wouldn't say that he fled the country. He would say that he was sent to, um, <laughs> to Scandinavia um, by the Dönitz government to negotiate the end of the war. The cessation of hostilities in the northern sector, so in Scandinavia, which in fact means he fled the country. Okay. Um, so he 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 got out of the country, um, actually nicely equipped with 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 money, several passports, and so on and so forth. And he goes to Sweden. I mean, this is where all of this is supposed to happen. And due to the negotiations that had happened. At the very end of the war, and due to his association with Count Volker Bernadotte, who um, is a representative of, of the Red Cross in, in these negotiations, he ends up in this woolly nice setup where he is initially ensconded in one of Bernadotte's estates, and then he is in a reasonably nice setup in in Stockholm. And it's in this situation that he writes down what I call the Urfaust, the the main manuscript or the basic manuscript of the negotiations that happened in, in the last weeks of the war, those humanitarian efforts, quote unquote. So he's writing that Bernadotte is writing his version of those particular events. And Schellenberg's adjutant, um, Franz Göring, is writing his version of the, the events. I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes calling it the, the Swedish writer, Writers' Collective <laughs> um, because there is something peculiar going on about the way how this particular document that becomes so important for Schellenberg to secure to secure his future and has become so important for many historians who, who take this very much at, at face value and are then very excited that it matches up with, with Bernadotte's statements by and large, big surprise. I mean, they were basically sitting in the same house writing that. So this becomes this, this woolly document, a really important document, which is quite important for Schellenberg's well-being and for what, what historians write about, especially the negotiations at the end of the war. Eventually, Schellenberg, um, the, the Americans understand that Schellenberg is um, sitting pretty in Sweden. That's what it boils down to. And at that point, Schellenberg has already, and we're talking, you know, May, May, late May, early June of, um, of 45. Schellenberg is ensconded enough, and he has enough support from Bernadotte. Who liked the man? Who who, who liked dealing with Schellenberg during the negotiations? Schellenberg also had has some other contacts in Sweden, so he's a- actually able to negotiate with with American officials the the modes of or the, the the conditions of his return to Germany, which is quite amazing if you think about that. Mm-hmm. He 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 meets with his name is I think Rayens. Who, who is the, uh, the U.S. representative there. And that person is, is rather smitten by Schellenberg and all that Schellenberg can tell about Nazi Germany and she writes a very favorable uh, report to American officials. And Sch- Schellenberg basically negotiates a way in which he's brought into Germany, then he's brought to the U.K. for a little while, and then he's returned to Germany. He's obviously under arrest, and he is. Um, he has at this point made it very clear that he's going to be a friendly visit, uh, a friend, friendly witness. And he's very happy to talk to anyone who wants to talk to him. And he's going to tell them, quote unquote, everything. But that very much means that Schellenberg at this point then tries to and is successful. At, making good use of his insider knowledge. So the insider knowledge of Nazi Germany, of the structure, he is then using that to deflect from his own activities, and that works exceedingly well. It works exceedingly well also because Kaltenbrunner is on the dock. And, I mean, the the relationship between Kaltenbrunner and Schellenberg was uh, famously difficult. I mean, they, they worked together on occasion just nicely. If they had a, had a joint enemy, for example, Ribbentrop, then they could work together like there's no tomorrow. But the rest of the time, they spent fighting with each other. So now Kaltenbrunner is on the dock, and Schellenberg is all, all too happy to tell the Allies everything they want to know about Kaltenbrunner and then some. Schellenberg is also the person who had worked very closely for many years with Heydrich. Very uh, worked very closely for many years with Himmler. So in in many ways, he becomes the go-to person for the Western allies to ask about Heidrich Himmler and Karl Brunner. He's obviously not the only person, but he's very good at selling the information he has to the highest bidder. So that puts him, um, all things considered, into reasonably pretty situation, all things considered.
0: Well, We've taken up a lot of your time, but before we wrap things up today, what are you working on now?
1: I'm working on, and this is a reason why I'm still typing Reichsicherheitshauptamt. Um, I'm working on a book on Hildegard Bates, and I mentioned her a little while ago. She, she was the woman who ran Office 6 operations in Rome.
0: The secretary, yes.
1: Yeah, the secretary. She later becomes quite important in the famous Chiano affair. So she is this woman who has access to Chiano in prison and whatnot. Um, and that part of her story is reasonably well known, but I now have her uh, almost complete files, um, CIA files mostly, um, which tells about a far more complicated story of the Chiano affair um, in which Hildegard Bates's position is by far more important than uh, the historiography makes her out to be as more, more or less as a mastermind of this plan to spring Ciano from prison and and rush him into into Switzerland. So there, there there's a story there about gender and intelligence I'm interested in. But what makes Hildegard Bates so particularly interesting is then that, um, in the post-war period, she first works for U.S. intelligence in Berlin, um, in a, in a bunch of very high stakes operations. And then she becomes a very important Journalist in West Germany, quite influential and and one of the, the, I think one of the two female journalists of national note in that time period. So it's um, so once again a biographical approach, as I said before. Biographical is a way I, I like to think or I like to organize things, but it's to quite some extent a story of what it means to be female and ambitious in. Germany's 20th century
0: that sounds like it's going to be absolutely fascinating is this going to be an article or a book
1: it's going to be a book it started out as an article but I have by now found so much interesting stuff that I'm thinking it's going to be a a book and it's going to be about the post-war period quite a bit because she is one of the big political journalists and you know she's forging this career which is quite astonishing and if I'm ever going to s- to sell a book to Hollywood, this is going to be the one. I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> um, but it's it's this really fascinating story. But there's so many things one can look at through this prison of Hildegard Bates, and um, I'm completely fascinated by it. And I'm learning lots and lots of stuff. So right now I'm I'm working on on the Berlin spy operations, and it's quite intriguing. So it's um. It's cool. It's a, it's a great topic. I'm really excited about it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, the secretaries are totally overlooked. I and I, I remember reading a CIA report that actually had in the margins find the secretaries when it's in one of the Gestapo reports. But
1: oh yeah, I I have this article out um, uh, on on Bates where my, my my last few it's it's a book chapter, not an article. My last few sentences are about that <clears throat> we should be paying more attention to the secretaries. Because it's the secretaries who, who know where the bodies are buried. Because presumably they were the only person who people who knew where to find the shovel in the first place. Because, you know, it's a, it's a secretary who runs the place. So it's, it's, it's really quite intriguing. But what, what I find so intriguing about Bates is the fact how she, it's, it's again about, um, to some extent, about someone who makes a career and how she finagles her way through that you know the where gender works to her advantage where it's her disadvantage how um, how gender norms change how she works with them against them there is so much intriguing stuff going on and quite simply the fact that um, I mean she shows up in the post-war historiography as a lovesick secretary who basically goes on um, who who engages in in a very dangerous, um, operation in 1944, because she is in love with a dead man, was Ciano, the, the Italian foreign, foreign, the the late Italian foreign minister. Um, if if you look at that story in her own words, something quite different emerges. And if you look at, at it from the outside and not through the lens of the SD officials, who actually wrote up their stories or talked about them. With the purpose of persuading the Allies that they were good intelligence officers.
0: Well, absolutely cannot wait to read that. But we are out of time for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh,
1: thank you so much for
0: having me. This was fun. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure. Well, that does it for us here at the New Books Network. Once again, we've been speaking to Katrin Paler about her new book, The Third Reich's Intelligence Services The Career of Walter Schellenberg. Katrin's institutional biography of the head of the Nazi political intelligence service was published in 2017 with Cambridge University Press. And if you think you might be interested in picking up a copy, consider using the link in the description. It will help Katrin out and it will help us out here at the New Books Network. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.